Hey, welcome to the Tradies Success Podcast. If you're loving the podcast, we'd love to help you start, scale, or automate your tradie business. We help everyone from startup all the way up to $1 million plus months, and would love to be able to help you too. So click the link in the show notes if you're interested in getting some support and joining an epic community of legends in the academy. We'd also appreciate if you're loving the podcast to leave a review. It helps us reach more people and help more tradies like you run successful businesses. All right, let's get into it. Hey, Lucas, how you going, man? I am doing so great. I'm so glad to be here on your show. It's, I'm, I don't know where we're going. I don't know exactly what we're going to talk about, but I am so stoked. Man, I'm uh, really excited to learn a lot about you and what you're doing. And um, yeah, I'd love to just start with what have you been doing this year with COVID and everything that's been happening? What is your style here? What's been happening with that? Right, Greg, this year, um, man, for everyone, it's been just a crazy, insane year. And I think we've been, in so many ways, we've been blessed. Just before COVID, um, actually, it was in towards the fall, you know, the end of Q3 last year, middle Q4, um, started to make some changes in my business saying, okay, we want to begin to invest in some other areas. So we're going to draw back on our expenditure which that was about a three-month process. Um, so both just as a family and as business. So come the the end of January, we actually downsized our, our expenses considerably. And um, six weeks later, you know, COVID just explodes on the scene. So I feel like in so many ways, um, we have been we have been blessed in that, you know, we dodged a big bullet by kind of downsizing so that we can reinvest into other areas that we wanted, not knowing what was about to come. So um, our, our family, I have four boys, um, praise God, we're all healthy, we're all safe. Um, the isolation can really can really get to you. I know it weighs a lot more on my, my wife than me as I'm like, oh, just lock me in an office and let me do my work. Um, but it's been, a, it's been a year, that's for sure. A lot of plans ruined, but so run me over your business and what you do. Like what did you downsize from? What, if, what were you doing and what you're doing now? Yeah, so my business, I'm in marketing, I, really brand consulting. I help companies figure out how to communicate their, their internal cu- culture, set their internal culture, and then communicate that in a way that people can join in and join their tribe and their movement. So rather than talking about what's your vision statement, what's your mission statement, and you have these like, 30 word, you know, run on sentences that no one can even understand. You slap it on a wall somewhere in your office and you're like, what does that mean? I don't know. You know, I help companies figure out, okay, how do we behave internally? What are some of our core strategic anchors? And then how do we communicate that in external calm? So I help help brands, organizations figure out how to take that internal and communicate it externally in a way that people can buy into and resonate with emotionally. And so we downsized, we downsized one by moving um, out of Dubai into a, a smaller city kind of on the outskirts. And so that downsized our rent, our office space, everything cut our expenses enormously to begin to invest into ourselves, into our family. Um, we were planning on investing in real estate, but now I think it's uh, a good time to to wait to see what happens as 
you know, if things continue to bottom out come the rest of the year. Um, and so we, we kind of drew back and downsized. And then um, I, like you, I have a podcast. And that has become really where a lot of my, my energy, my heart, my emotion has been pouring into that area and building that up even as a, a stream of income for us. That's really where if I could, you know, if I could dream the dream, um, I, would, <laughs> I would fire all my clients and just do my podcast full time. It's just, it's really where um, I come alive as an individual, as I'm sure um, you know. Yeah, totally, man. And what, what do you talk about on your podcast? Like, what's your favorite topics? And do you have a theme? Is it marketing? Or is there a particular theme that you follow in your podcast? Yeah, so when I, my pod, I'm 165 episodes into my podcast now. I started it two years ago. And when I started, I had no, I had no idea. I just had no clue what I was doing. Um, and so I, I think I've went through like a couple of different iterations of like my, my tagline. Um, first, I thought like, okay, you know, creatives and entrepreneurs. And then I moved to kind of like change makers. But I've, I've been intentional to stay away from kind of like the business marketing um, uh, podcast. I, f- I feel like that's in some ways really cliche. I don't think it's wrong if someone's doing that. It's just not the thing that makes, it doesn't wake me up in the morning. I don't wake up in the morning thinking of how to optimize my Google click, click funnels. Like I don't, I don't think about that stuff. I'm not like yeah. <laughs> obsessed about, you know, colorways on my website. Um, but what I do love is helping people create a framework by which they can view and see the world rightly and then operate in that world. Um, so I, I started talking about purpose, you know, it was just would come up in each episode talking about people's purpose. Um, and then over the last, maybe probably the last year, I've begun to realize that as a generation, both millennials, I'm sure you and I probably fit in the millennial range somewhere. And, you know, generation uh, Z now, um, I've realized we're, we're so obsessed with purpose but it's not serving us. Everyone talks about, you got to know your purpose. You got to know, you know, the meaning, why, what's your why? And I love it. I teach that, you know, when I, when I'm working with clients through their marketing, what's, what's your why you need to know why you exist, what you do. But what I've realized is as a generation, we start searching for that why, for that purpose. And it feels so not tangible. It feels like it's just a feeling like, well, you'll know, it's like, you'll know when you find it. And so we begin to look inwards. We begin to focus on ourselves and, and trying to figure out, well, what's my purpose? What am I here for? What should I do? What's my passion? What do I love? What's my ikigai, which I, I hate, by the way. I think that's just, you know, don't even get me on that little, it's a great <laughs> tool, but it's just like, okay, you just threw a cool Japanese word on it and whatever. But we focus so much on where does my passion meets my purpose, meets my meaning, meets my income. And it, it's driving, I think, a generation to nihilism because they're so self-focused, self-centered. And what I've realized is, no, it's actually, we have to look outside. We have to discern how to see the world rightly. We have to discern truth. Two plus two equals four. It doesn't equal five. We have to discern that. And when we discern that and see the world rightly, that's where we find purpose because it's actually rooted and grounded in something outside of our emotions. So that's 
when I talk about frameworks by which we can view the world in. Yeah, so just to give people an example of what a framework might look like in that model, so looking outside, how, uh, tell us your story. Like, tell us how you came to understand that. Tell us why you have uh, understood it the way you understand it now. Love to hear that. Yeah, yeah. So that's a great question. Let me think of how to, how to properly articulate that answer. Um, I think in, in the journey of, you know, as I said, my podcast, I've been focusing on purpose and meaning. But I realized, as I said, the undergurney has to be truth. Um, one minute. My book is somewhere. The book is somewhere right here. Let me pull it out. Oh, it's right here, my book. So I wrote this book a couple years ago, Anchored, The Discipline to Stop Drifting. And in this season, probably a lot of things started in this season of my life. I, my family and I, we just moved to the Middle East for a marketing and sales position. And, you know, we we're, I mean, I'm 25, newly married, a year and a half, six-month-old kid. We move, we're like, okay, we're going to go on this massive adventure. We're going to go on this adventure. We're going to change the world, you know. It's going to be moving to the Middle East, you're going to move to Dubai, it's, you know, the land of opportunity, dreams, so fun, right? Yeah, well, the exact opposite, I just got like punched in the face, <laughs> and I woke up um, embittered, angry at all my friends, feeling like I've been, you know, climbing this ladder of success, and then I just fell off this cliff where all of the metrics that I thought was going to lead me to be successful, they were deceiving me. I thought that I had this romantic idea of what adventure looked like, and I didn't realize that adventure looks like walking in the rain, bored for hours, and then almost being killed by a wild animal that you need to like go and see a therapist for the next 10 years of your life, and you know, you're crippled, right? When, you, when we read books like Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, what are they doing? They are walking, bored, miserable, cold, and hungry, and when they're not bored, they're getting killed by, like, almost killed by some crazy creature, right? Y you and I actually, you know, we say we want adventure, but when we get it, we're like, oh my goodness, I need, I need a vacation for the next year. <laughs> yeah. And so, as, as I went on this journey and I began to awake to all these, you know, false algorithms and paradigms of, you know, I need to be busy to be successful and... I need to have huge numbers. I need to totally, you know, rehab my life every five to, you know, six years in order to be on the radical cutting edge. I kind of started to realize that these all weren't serving me. And my emotions, um, as I was being led by them, weren't serving me. And I realized I had to reframe my world and ground it in truth, in, in rationality, in wisdom. And, and I talk a lot about this, that so much of our generation, we want to be happy. Do you want to be happy, Greg? Yeah, for sure. Definitely, man. You want to be happy. Tell me, what happens when you begin to pursue happiness in your life? When you're pursuing happiness, Yeah. what already, normally happens? I already know this because I've gone in and out of it uh, a lot of times. But when I'm pursuing happiness, I'm not happy. Like, because the reason I'm not happy is because I'm not happy with the now. And when I'm happy with the now, I'm actually happy. So I always, I always tell my clients and always tell myself when I'm journaling that you've got to be 
content with today and then happiness comes and then you're more successful as a result because you're happy <laughs> but you don't seek happiness. <laughs> that is completely true. And the same thing is with purpose, right? So when we seek purpose, we become nihilistic and uncontent. When we seek happiness, we become unhappy. We become disappointed. We become like embittered. Mm. And it's because happiness is a byproduct of something. And it's a byproduct of wisdom. If we would to pursue and seek out wisdom first, with wisdom, when we find it, and that is outside of us, right? Our hearts are wickedly deceitful. We are not wise. We have wisdom in a multitude of counselors. But when we seek out wisdom with everything, when we find wisdom, it comes with it long life. It comes with it riches and it comes with it happiness. A happiness that isn't dependent on our outside circumstances. A happiness that when everything is falling in, we have a wellspring of gladness and joy from the inside that's unshakable, not based on our circumstances or our feelings. And so as I began to connect those two things together, that happiness is a byproduct of wisdom. Wealth is a byproduct of wisdom. The same thing happens. Once we start yeah. chasing money, what happens to money? <sighs> the same thing with purpose and truth. And I realized that I, as I pursued tr truth and wisdom, that I actually found my purpose. I found my meaning. I found happiness. I found wealth. I, I found long life. So it, it's, it's when we chase those byproducts, it's like, man, you're in trouble. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, um, so obviously you've come to that realization and you've, you've, you've understood that now I need to seek wisdom. Um, what are some things that you do to uh, attain that? What do you do as a, a practice ritual uh, habit um, to get wisdom? What are some of the things that you love to do around that? Uh, that's a great question. I, I love to read. I love to have my thoughts challenged. I, I, I you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I love to read um, the scriptures. I love to read the book of Proverbs. I read that every day just to inundate myself with like right frameworks of thought. Um, I like to, as I said, build frameworks by which I can discern and see the world. And you as an electrician, you, you probably do this too. When there's a problem on an electrical grid, you're not just trying to like, bang on the closest thing next to you, you have a framework by which you can begin to dissect and find out where the root of the problem is rather than just fixing the actual immediate issue, right? Yeah, there's a process so that I, you follow. I work to build those things. Yeah, there's a process that you follow. So I work to, to build those things in my life and it's a lot of it is through reading, um, it's through, through prayer, it's through reading scripture, um, and it's through having a... a a group of people around me that are going to challenge my thinking rather than just being swept by the, the currents of the world. Yeah, totally. So, um, great. Thank you so much for sharing. I think, um, people can definitely, you know, relate to that and find their thing that they like to read or learn or constant practice with that. And you say every day, and I think every day is, a, it's a time, you know, I always tell my clients, you've got to schedule it in. If you don't schedule in, you're not going to do it, but then yours is a habit. It's every mm. day. There's no way that you're going to miss that opportunity to get that time oh, yeah. to, to get wisdom. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, 
one thing that I always think about, I have this, I make, I make these stickers to kind of remind myself, I don't know if your, your people can see this, but right here, it's, it's this little triangle, it's a warning sign, and it says, watch your thoughts. And what I love about this sticker is it, it's come, it comes from a, an idea from cognitive behavioral therapy, which is that your thoughts create your emotions, your emotions create your actions, your actions then create your behaviors, which create your habits, which then is going to create your destiny, your environment. And it all starts with watching our thoughts. So what I do is, you know, from, from our hearts come the, the, the wellspring of life and all the issues of life come. And it's from watching our thoughts, making sure that we're catching those tiny little thoughts. You know, it, it, my wife and I went through a real rough season in our marriage, end up being in therapy for um, a year about. And one of the things that our, our therapist taught us, she was a, a CBT, a cognitive behavioral therapist. She thought, uh, taught us this, you have to watch your thoughts. And oftentimes in our marriage, we get in these cycles in our relationship where it would start with one tiny thought like, oh, my wife, she didn't smile at me. She must not like me. And then that moves like that moves you into emotional space. And then physically, I'll take a step back. And then it creates this negative cycle because of one tiny little thought. And next thing you know, it's like, man, I probably married the wrong person. You know, we should, you know, divorce the D word. Right. But yeah. it starts with one thought. Um, and it takes discipline to discipline your mind, to discipline your thought life, to take those thoughts captive and then think truth into you know, to replace because you can't just you know, it's kind of like the Oprah Winfrey sort of write your own story. And this is where I started off in my podcast. It was like, you know, write your own story. But it's like, well, you can't write your own story. I can't just make believe I'm an NBA player and I'm going to be an NBA player. So it's, it's realizing we have to replace those negative lies with truth. And we have to find the evidence for that truth. And that is the thing that sets us into a virtuous thought cycle. Um, but if we just replace it with a lie, let's say it's, oh, well, I'm fat. Okay, no, I'm not fat. I'm healthy, but we're really fat. Like we're really unhealthy. We have like heart problems. We're overweight. We can't just think that we're not and that solves our problems. We have to replace it with truth and then replace it with, okay, I can, I'm a powerful agent in my life and I can actually do something about it. Yeah, I've, I just want to talk on talking truth to yourself as well because I believe that's sometimes, especially males, I believe uh, probably more um, suspect, susceptible to saying lies to themselves, like making belief that they are something that they are not. And um, it took me a long time also to admit when I was uh, wrong to myself, like not to others, like I would openly admit that I was wrong if, if I had made a mistake or anything like that. But to myself, when I was struggling you know, with uh, my two kids, you know, just learning how to be a dad and a partner to my wife when we had kids was a real uh, challenge that I had to try and work out. And, you know, uh, you having four boys, I'd love to hear about your experience with that. Um, but to work through that and to be honest with myself, you know, I found journaling for myself uh, as a way that I could reflect on my true feelings. And when I did reflect on my true feelings, now I can heal that problem. But when I wasn't telling myself the truth, mm. I wasn't going to fix the problem. <laughs> That's so real. <laughs> like if, I mean, this is, this goes to any business problem, 
any you know any enge electrical engineering problem, any personal problem, if we're not willing to recognize and address the issue, it will never get fixed. But I mean, I've been, it's like so, so many of us, we're so afraid to look ourselves in the mirror. Like we're so afraid to look at our darkness, our malevolence, our, our, our capacity for evil. Like this idea that all men are basically good. It's like, wow, I mean, I guess you haven't spent a lot of time with your own thought life. Like how close each and every one of us are on the edge of a complete psychotic break into like darkness and wickedness, right? It's, it's all right underneath the surface. Um, until we like address that, we can't fix that. Until we wake up to it, to our reality, whether it's in our business, our personal life, our marriages, with our kids, like it's that, that moment of honesty and clarity that can bring us to it. I was reading um, today uh, a book by Jordan Peterson, Maps of Meaning. And he, he, was, he was sharing this um, old kind of mythology story of there was some uh, 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 guru or something who was aware of his consciousness. He was aware of the surroundings of his life. And because of that, he was so despondent. He was, he was miserable because he wanted to understand, well, what is the makeup of my soul? What is the makeup of my being? And he was unhappy. And one of his followers talked to his neighbor next door, and she was an old woman who was completely happy. He asked her, well, do you ever think about, you know, what the construction of your soul is? She's like, no, I've never thought about it. You know, I'm happy just doing my life. And his follower came back to him and said, aren't you shameful that your neighbor is completely happy, but here you are miserable, wondering about, the, you know, how your soul is constructed? And he said, yes, that's true but I would not want that happiness. I would rather be conscious and aware of reality, of my surrounding, of my, my weakness, my brokenness, my inability, and live in truth than to live in ignorance and be blissful. I would rather be aware. And it goes back to that happiness thing. You know, if you wanna be happy, fill yourself with entertainment, but you're not, gonna, you're not going to actually live a full life. You're just gonna lull yourself into sleep, into, into sleep, into slumber. But we have to be people who are aware and attentive, sober-minded, because if we can, we'll find that the deeper joy and gladness that is unshakable in and out of seasons, in and out of storms. And that is, that is something way more real than ignorance is bliss. Yeah, just in reflection of my own life as well, like I can totally understand like in people that I've, I've met who have held on to, you know, they, they seem very happy, but then they have chaotic breakdowns, you know, because they're holding on to mm. this, you know, all of a sudden they, for no reason will just break down. Um, they're holding up this mirror. And I, I actually saw someone around um, uh, like uh, personality profiling and uh, I was classified as a high performer. So this is where I was always putting on a performance to everyone looking out inside to me, I was always good. Like he never has a problem. He's always got things together. He's always, you know, doing well. He's always this, he's always that. But I know in myself, I was holding a lot of that pain uh, and all of that stress and pressure within myself. So eventually when, I, when I, the pressure got more mm. and more and more, it's like a pressure cooker, you know, building, building, building to the point where I just went 
and you know it couldn't hold the pressure anymore um, and that's when you have you know problems occur within your life because you're holding on to things that aren't the truth I guess you what you're saying there yeah no I, I think that's exactly right um, I would rather live in truth and and have a level of dissatisfaction uh, with my life than to just you know lull and dull the pain right I mean how many people drink themselves to sleep every night because they're trying to just drown them drown the pain like how many people are addicted because they're trying to drown the pain how many people watch TV for hours a day because they're trying to drown the pain we have to do the opposite we have to be the do the courageous thing face truth go and get help face that pain because as my mom says life is too long to not do that you know people say well life's too short to you know but the reverse is life is really long do you want to be miserable for like your entire life and then die yeah man no. it, it is it is a long life i forgot like i still feel so young like i feel like i've got so much life to live and i'm i'm really grateful because my wife helped me through you know that period of me understanding that and being 100% open with myself uh, and looking inward and saying things aren't good and to, for me to vocalize that, you know, every time I didn't feel right to my wife. And the other thing was the most important mm. person to me was like my being a high performer, the most important person to me was my wife. So she was the least likely person I wanted to show I was struggling to, which is like the opposite of what you really want. You want to be fully open with your wife or your partner. But for me, I just couldn't, you know, I just couldn't show her I was struggling. And um, when we worked through that, she, she helped me through that period and it was really good and I'd never been so happy, you know. And the times since then when I felt my happiest. What, um, what was it like? I was just going to ask, what was it like for, for you in the breaking through of that process where you're, you know, in some ways put up that facade what was it like for you to, to take steps forward to, um, I don't want to use the word deconstruct, uh, but to, to dismantle that lie that you were living and begin to actually be honest? Not, and I think sometimes people can, you know, well, I'm just being honest. And then they say the most horrible, you know, mean thing, or they use it as an excuse to complain. But what we're talking about is a little different of vulnerability, not as to make excuses for why no one can understand you and why your life is just ruined, but to actually address problems so that you can solve them. So what was some of like that process for you? Yeah, so for me, I, um, I, I couldn't actually see that I was angry. I didn't believe I was angry and I didn't actually feel angry. I wasn't someone that went like, oh, I'm an angry person. Like I wasn't like that ever. Like I was always, to myself, I wouldn't let myself be like that. Um, but when I started seeing this person who helped me understand the situation I was currently in, um, they were like, you're angry. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not angry. And they're like, yes, you are. You're angry. And I was like, no, I'm not. And so I left that meeting. Anyway, I came back. She left me this activity to, to do these anger letters. And um, so I had to start the anger letter and I would say, you know, I'm so angry. No, dear, whoever. Like, it didn't matter who it was. It could be the cat. My my, my daughter, my son, my wife, my friend, whoever it is, but it, you have to start, dear this person, I am so angry because blah, 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 and just, I'll just write this thing about what I was angry about. 
anyway, so it was like, it was like anger vomit coming out for about six months. Um, and particularly at my wife and, um, it wasn't pleasant for her. And, um, it was like, I was blaming her for things that I, like I was saying, you don't let me do this and you don't let me do that. And like literally for six months when we had our first kid, that's what she, like, she said, don't do that. Don't do this. But for me, I just said, fine, I won't do it. And so I didn't, but then I hang, hung on to that anger for that long. This was like four years later or five years later. And anyway, I'm telling her that you won't let me do this. And she's like, that was like five years ago. I'm not angry about that anymore. So, and so I'm like, I'm like, what do you mean you're not angry? And I was like, I mean, what do you mean I can do that? Oh, I can do oh, And so I was like, it was like vomit, but it was about six months. But then after that, I was just, I, I was so calm. Like I had realized that I was holding on to these things that weren't real. These, um, like mm. you said, I, I started to create these scripts in my own brain that she doesn't let me do that. And I can't do that because of her. And these things were said constantly in my mind, but I never said anything to her. Um, so the pressure built up, built up, built up to this point. And then, um, yeah, it was just such a, it was just such a, uh, revolutionary thing for me to go through, but it wasn't pleasant and wasn't easy either. It's, I mean, it makes me think of, I forgot who said it, but you know, communication is the root of all problems, right? So many of our problems um, come down to lack of communication or, you know, making assumptions or wrong expectations. Um, it doesn't mean that, you know, all, if, if everyone communicated rightly that they would agree, I think um, most of the time, people are going to disagree with you. I think most, most of our lives, we're going to be met with people who even when we do communicate rightly, we're still in disagreement. We still have a different way of viewing the world, but then we have to then negotiate of how to, how to have a win-win situation between us, whether it's in marriage or whether it's in parenting. Um, we teach that with our kids. Our kids are always, you know, they always try to come to us to deal with their problems. We have four boys seven, five, um, two and a half, and then almost one year. And uh, they're always, you know, if there's a conflict, they're trying to come to us and say, mom, so-and-so did this, so-and-so did that. And we're like, what does that have to do with me? Like, you need to go and work that out with them first. You know, first work it out between each other, communicate and talk. And if you can't come to a resolution then, then you do an authority figure or a parent and work that out. And so I, I, you know, that, that thing of taking that initiative and responsibility to communicate to one another when we are hurt, when someone hurts our feelings, when we have a disagreement, and it doesn't mean that we're always agree with one another, but at least that gets us on, on the journey to negotiate how we can have a win-win situation. Yeah, I, um, coming back to what you said initially when we started the conversation around internal culture, and, and that's some, mm. something that you do with your work. Um, we only recently, actually, uh, we've been in business running electrical contracting business for 10 years, uh, 10 and a half years. And um, only recently we've put the responsibility back onto the staff member. So the electrician or the field electrician, whereas uh, say if a complaint or a query on cost or any sort of issue came in, usually the manager would deal with it but the manager would deal with it and then have this like, you stuffed up again, you stuffed up again. 
you stuffed up again. And then he would get angrier and angrier about this person stuffing up. And so we've decided to put it back onto the individual electrician, which is unprecedented. Like an electrician mm. is there to do the electrical work. But now all of a sudden these guys are taking the responsibility. And the main thing is they're hearing about every time they stuff up. And so now they're changing. Now they're growing. But before the manager would just take it into their own soul and then um, wouldn't tell them that they made a mistake, you know? And so it's been a really big change, but I'd love to hear you speak on that actually, because we've just made that change and yeah. I mean, that sounds like a huge kind of cultural pivot. And I can imagine that those, those managers, well, they don't want to tell, you know, John every week you stuffed up again. Right. Because they're like, well, you know, that's not helpful either. But then it just builds up resentment until one day it just over, you know, ex explodes on John. Like, well, you've been stuffing up for the last six months. They're like what? Or until they, you know, they come up for their, their, uh, their six month, you know, review or whatever. All of a sudden they're like, what? I didn't know. I, and what I love about it too, is that it, it puts the, the agency back into the person that made the mistake. And it also creates this, this culture saying that we all make mistakes. Like everyone, we all maybe brashly or in the wrong way. We're never going to be able to do everything perfect. Um, but then it gives that person agency back to be able to fix their mistake. And it makes them a powerful person. And I think, I mean, maybe you can let us know what do the customers think about it? Have have the customers have a, a better relationship now with your servicemen when it's your servicemen who are fixing their own mis mistakes? And do you find you have a better relationship with your customers? Yep. So the, the big thing is before the customer would call up and complain, then the manager would take that complaint and then they would call the electrician and the electrician wouldn't answer the phone and then they'll call them back at a time that's inconvenient. And then they would have that conversation about what did you do with this job? And then, then the manager would call the client and then it wasn't someone they've ever spoken to before. And so there's this new person with no connection, no, you know, uh, relationship with the client to try and explain that problem. And then the client may say something like, but what about this? And now the manager's like, oh, I don't know, like, hold on, I'll call the electrician back. And so it was just this total inefficiency. Um, Telephone. So, yeah. And now the electrician doing it, they've built the re relationship and the rapport with the customer. So they appreciate that person's calling them back, but that the electricians also got all of the answers they need. And if they don't, like you said, go to the higher authority or go to the manager. Um, and that's what's happening now. And that, that is a, a theme that I think ties into some, you know, bigger macro narrative, you know, cable TV is coming out and all of a sudden, Kids are getting abducted left and right. It's not safe outside. Um, playgrounds aren't safe. We can't let our kids go outside. And we began to move into safetyism and pr protectionism, um, trying to protect and over shelter our kids. You know, and you see it, you know, with people just being cleaning everything, always hand sanitizing everything. Anything drops on the ground, they have to like sanitize it. And we grow in, in strength, we, our immune system grows when we're exposed to pathogens, when we're exposed to dirt time and time again. And when we're exposed to having to work our problems out on the playground, when we're, we're out on the playground and someone calls us a name, 
you know, you and I probably grew up like we had to deal with it ourselves. Well, well, nowadays there's so much parental oversight that the teacher or the parent or the adult is intervening and dealing with that. And kids aren't all across university campuses where, you know, we need to, we need to be safe and, you know, the Twitter wars of your existence, you know, threatens my safety because someone said something. But the, the, the problem is it started years, decades ago where instead of exposing our kids to the real world and letting people grow a thick skin, you know, we've, we've created essentially these snowflakes that how disempowered and are fragile from being able to take on the world around them. Yeah, it's, it's a really solid point that you're saying around um, with the kids as well. I think uh, I'm, I'm witnessing that right now being parents of my two kids and um, they will come to us and we've, we've got to, obviously you get bo- bo- tied into that emotionally and you, you just want to get in there and fix it. But um, it's the, no, you have to sort that out. And I love that you said that as well, because that's something I'm working at at the moment. It's just, hey, this is your, you've got to, you know, talk to each other about that um, and see if you can work it out. Because in keeping a level headed when everyone's screaming is, <laughs> is super difficult. But, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I totally hear what you're saying, especially with schools, uh, parents, teachers, you know, and other, other parents intervening with other kids and their parents and trying to fix the problem for them rather than letting the kids just sort it out themselves. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's a big issue across society at large. And I think, you know, we're only right now starting to see some of the the real negative fruits. And I think we can combat that just like you're doing in your company and you're doing in your home. One, it's setting like strong cultural values within your company. This is how we do behave. This is how we don't behave. And I think, people get that that wrong. Well, what does culture mean? And people will, will slap up like a vision statement of our culture is, you know, I don't know, some long winded sentence. But it's really if you ask the question, how do we behave? And there's a few different levels. And Patrick Lencioni writes about this in the, in the five dysfunctions of teams and in, in his book, The Advantage. Um, and so Patrick Lencioni writes about how there are different kind of segments of how do we behave or our culture? And the, the first bottom segment is what are our permission to play values? And, you know, those would be like integrity. Uh, we don't lie. We don't steal. Um, politeness. It's like, yeah, I, I hope that your company has like integrity as a core value. But then we end up like, right, you end up with those companies with like 30 different core values. And you're like, well, which one of them is your core value? I mean, integrity, quality, is that a core value? Those are like all the, the permission to play. And then you have uh, your, your core values, which are your three kind of anchors that no matter what, you know, we would hire and fire on these three behavioral kind of cultural points. Those would be your, your core values. You don't want any more than three. And then you have your aspirational values, which might be, 100% satisfaction, or maybe you want to be an international company. We're an international, and but right now you're only local. Okay, that's an aspiration. Aspirational. You're you're working and you're moving towards that goal, but it's not necessarily a core value yet. And then there's your incidental um, core values, which is 
maybe you find you look around your office and you realize you know everyone you know likes classical music and wears black i don't know yeah. it's like well that's just that's an accident it's not like we hire and fire based on whether you're, you like a certain tv show or you're from a, a certain geographical location in in your country those are accidental core values or values or behavioral kind of instances so it's coming back to those okay what are what are our values of how we behave how do we act in the world and if we can hone in on that just like you guys are doing i think it really makes a big difference of a memorable difference to the people that you engage with you have to talk about it day in and day out and that's what we do with our kids we talk about those values day in and day out we hammer that into them you know this is who you are you are a leader does a leader behave like this does the leader manipulate their people does a leader seek their own no you're a leader so how do leaders behave and so the same thing that i think you're doing with your company is we have to as leaders of our our families leaders of our communities leaders of our businesses even if you don't have a position even if you don't have a title you can carry that influence into your sphere of society and begin to impact and shape culture through the this is what we do do and this is what we don't do which are you know basic um boundaries yeah no totally and i'd, I'd love to hear with four boys i'd love to hear your because you sounds like you're very um tuned into your frameworks do you have a certain framework first of all what's it like having four boys and then uh, what is the framework that you that you use to um, ensure that they grow up to have the right values? Yeah, absolutely. We have we have some friends that have four girls, and uh, we often vacation together, and we'll spend you know a couple weeks together, and we're like, wow, girls are really different than boys. Our <laughs> boys are like wrestling, like make like just like so much energy they have to be outside running shirts off and uh their girls they're just like playing with their dolls they're all like nice and sweet we're like wow you have a good so <laughs> boys <laughs> at but, the moment <laughs> yeah great at, yeah at the moment um do you got do you guys have boys or girls what's your your makeup uh one girl and one boy what are their ages uh the girl is six and a half and the boy is three and a half. Yeah, so those are those are great ages. I love like, when you're getting to the, the fives and sixes. Right now, I'm, we're reading through The Hobbit with my two older boys. They love it. Just seeing their, their imagination um, really spring to life. Um, but as far as how do you how do you reinforce kind of those cultural pieces um, within your children? My wife does honestly she does most of the work as far as reinforcing some of those cultural things i'm i'm a very involved dad but i have to give credit where credit due she um really she has more exposure with them more touch points with them and is is the one that's making sure to drive um some of those cultural components um so there's a lot of uh, controversial um, parenting things that are out there today on both sides of the aisle. So I'm going to try to stay clear of maybe some of the controversy, but there's kind of the middle lane that I think we can hit on without causing too much controversy, which is 
when we exacerbate our children, which is essentially giving them empty threats over and over and over until we're upset, until we're annoyed at them, and then we explode and lash out, that's exacerbating our children. That creates a toxic environment in the home. And so it's just like it would create a toxic environment in your business. If you're telling your kids or you're telling your employee, do this or don't do this, you, you're not going to count to three. You're not going to be like, John, John, don't, John, one, Johnny, Johnny, two, don't, Johnny, don't make, Johnny, over here, he, he does it, he has problems hearing. Okay, Johnny, two and a half, Johnny, 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 stop, three, okay, that, that's it, get over here right now. And then you don't do anything. It's like Johnny has realized, yeah, mom and dad, they are pushovers. They are liars. They're lying to me. Empty threats are lies. So I think the, the, the first point, it falls on us as parents to model that not only to our employees, to do what we say, but to our kids. Where we, you know, one strike, you're out. It's, it's not like three, four, five. There's grace. There's mercy. There's do-overs. But it's, it's really a, I mean what I say when I say it the first time. And if I get to the point of frustration, that's not on them, that's on me. Because that means that I have not kept my word to them. And I'm actually filling them with empty threats, which makes them distrust our relationship and my word because then I've become a liar. So that's kind of like one of the, the core frameworks of having clear and healthy boundaries for your kids. Um, the other one, which is again, is boundaries. Our kids are happier when they have clear boundaries. So when we're going, like we expect that our kids know how to behave at someone else's house or how to behave in public, but your employees don't even know how to behave, right? Your 30 year old employee doesn't know how to behave at their client's house. You have to drill that into them week in and week out at your meeting. We have to do the same with our kids. So we'll do these training exercises where we'll teach them what we, what we mean when we say, come here. You know, we'll, we'll have these training exercises at our house where we say, okay, this is how you shake someone's hand. This is how you say hello. This is how you look them in the face, look them in the eye. Um, and then when we're going to someone's house or we're going out in public, we will coach them on the drive there. Okay, where are we going? What are their names? What will we do? What won't we do? What are the consequences for doing the wrong thing? What are the rewards for doing the right thing? Um, and rewards is also a big part of it. So I, I know I'm hitting a lot of different um, areas, um, but doing those things, setting those expectations in your home like you would in your company and then re-drilling that week in, week out. Um, and another, another point, no matter how you discipline, no matter what it is, it should always lead to intimacy. It should always lead to a deeper relationship with them. And so when we discipline our boys, we, we make sure that we're not doing it in anger. We're, we're making sure that we're disciplining it before we move into the place of anger, however you choose to do it. And then we communicate the long-term vision. Without vision, people throw off restraint. If you don't have a vision of why you're doing what you're doing, you're not going to put the work and effort into it. So we often we will cast the vision of, you know, you're suffering this consequence now because if you did that as an employee, you would get fired, right? You're suffering this consequence now because if you keep that behavior up, you will have no friends and you'll be a miserable, unhappy person in 20 years. 
And so we're continuing bringing that back and then we're bringing them back into relationship. And so it's holding the boundary quickly so that once once their their discipline is over, whatever it is, they are in right standing with the family again. There's no stonewalling. There's no kind of holding something over your kids' heads, which I think is the same thing that you would do in a company. Um, we just have to bring those frameworks that we were so used to in our companies back into our family life. So thank you. That was awesome. And I love hearing that. And that's some things that I'm going to also take on and, and do myself. Um, with the, with, uh, in times of when your kids have explosive anger, if they do, mine do, um, what, what do you do to manage that? Um, that's a great question. I think it would be going back to, to realizing it's like, okay, we all have big emotions. We all have these big emotions, but our emotions have consequences. So just like if you had big, big explosive anger, which you've struggled with in the past, right? Those have big consequences on your relationship. So I think probably the the first step we would do is we would, we would discipline in, in that action. Again, whichever course of action that you decide to do that, um, we would do that because there, there are consequences in the long term. And then I'm not, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a psychologist, um, but when we were in therapy, our therapist said that often if a child is consistently acting out, it's normally because there's something going on within a marriage. And so we will look often, if we starting to see habits forming in our children, we'll begin to look back into our marriage and say, okay, do we have problems between us that our kids acting out to try to unify the parents to bring attention towards them? Or have we given them enough um, energy? Have we given them enough bound, like boundaries and bound uh, guidelines? Um, so it's kind of twofold, I think, we look at the health of our, our marriage and then of our interactions with them as, um, as a family. And, but then we do, we do make sure that they know that there are consequences um, for those actions. Um, because if we can train them now, they will be able to reap those benefits much further down the road. And I think that's the thing, it's training. So, so again, it goes back to that training. So, okay, what do we do when we have big emotions. Um, with COVID, we had, you know, my sons had a trip to Kuwait to play baseball on the all-star team and it got canceled. Imagine the disappointment as a seven-year-old, you you know, you love baseball and it got canceled. He had a lot of big emotions, but we taught him, okay, when you have big disappointing emotions, how do we deal with them? And we do that before they have those emotions. So before they're having a the big outburst, we teach them, okay, you can go on the, on the piano and you can play really loudly. You, you know, these are things that you can do. You can take the ball out and bounce it and throw it against the wall. This is how we deal with our anger or our big emotions. But we have to do that beforehand. Um, it's like they say in combat, in the heat of the battle, we don't rise to the challenge. We fall down to our baseline of training. And so that is, I think, the most important point. How can we train our kids so that when that moment happens, they already have the tools to deal with those emotions. Yeah, amazing. I oh, love that. Awesome. 
Thank you for sharing that. I think it, I think a lot of parents listening could take a lot from that. So I think it's really good. So where did you learn that sort of stuff from? Was that something that you've developed through your parents? Was it from uh, books that you've read, college? Like where did you pick up uh, an understanding around um, this? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there were a couple moments in our life. One when our oldest was two years old, he was not happy. And we found friends who they had really, really pleasant, happy, amazing kids. So we began to ask them, uh, what do you do with your kids? And they gave us some book suggestions. We adopted some of it. And then a couple of years later, you know, we, we find those issues coming up again. And uh, so, and we found more people who had amazing kids. I mean, like kids that you're like, what do you do? Like, what drug are you giving them? Hypnosis? Like, how are they so helpful and pleasant to be around? And I enjoy spending time with your kids. Like, they're, they're, they're a blessing to have in the room. They're not obnoxious. Um, so we asked them. And so uh, they pointed us to a couple books. Um, and, and one of the, the main books um, is Don't Make Me Count to Three. Again, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are going to find some controversial things in the books. Um, in the book. But we have found that it w once we instantly started applying these things, Don't Make Me Count to Three, um, we saw a transformation in our kids' lives from going from bickering and unhappy to like, wow, our, our kids are listening. They're, you know, quick obedience, which is completely, joyfully, and instantly. Like, wow, like things are changing within the culture of our family. So don't make me count to three. It, again, it's a faith-based book, um, but it ha it's just monumental um, seeing the transformation in our kids' lives. And then from that, we have so many people coming to my wife, not to me. They all come to my wife. They're like, what do you do with your kids? Your kids are amazing. And she coaches, you know, so many women through, through these situations. Um, so that's probably the biggest book. And that was a, a parent that suggested that to us who they had, you know, three kids who are old. They have great relationship with their kids. And it was evident by, you know, the culture that was in their home. And we asked, like, how do you have such amazing teenage kids? It's like, what did you do? Like, my two-year-old is, like, driving me crazy. But help me out here. Yeah. So <laughs> that, was, that was probably the biggest book for us. Awesome. I appreciate you sharing the book. I'm going to get onto that one for sure. So tell me about your book. Like, how did you come about writing it? What made you want to write it? Um, there it is. Tell me about it. There it is. Yeah. So I wrote this, as I said, I, I, when, we, when we moved to embark on our adventure, which is now seven years ago, to move to the Middle East for the sales marketing position, you know, we thought that the world was going to be so awesome. And instead, I found myself having to get off social media because every post of my friends just causes bitterness and resentfulness and anger rise up towards my friends because I lost so much shared meaning between them. And, and the, the culture was so different that I felt like all of my metrics were falling apart. So it really the book is probably targeted towards, you know, 18 to 25 year olds. It's a hundred page book short, highly actionable, lots of stories, principles, um, short ideas with, with actionable steps to help, uh, to help young people 
ground their life, anchor their life in, again, a framework to help them take action on their goals. So I talk about things like don't, don't talk about your dreams, execute them. Because when we talk about them, it fills our stomach with feeling like, wow, we've already achieved it. Or talk about you know, how we need to embrace the mundane, how being committed to something is the radical thing to do. We talk about small gains and how that over time creates monumental fruit. Um, talk about going alone. How, you know, talking about Kitty Genovese, who was uh, the famous story of where she was uh, stabbed like 23 times to death in broad, in, well, not broad daylight, in the middle of the night with 60 people watching and no one called the police. Why? Because they all thought that someone else was going to call the police. And so we talk about like some uh, stories and basic principles that probably someone who is really deep into the self-help kind of segment of, of literature would already know maybe a lot of these principles, but these were principles that I found was really able to anchor my life in that season and move out of it and take steps towards um, redefining, in some ways redefining success, but more redefining what does it mean to be productive and how can I be productive on a daily basis that reaches my goals without feeling like I'm burning out, without giving into anxiety. Um, so short, 100-page, highly actionable book. Um, that's kind of how and why and what the book is. Um, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Hey, so <laughs> tell, tell me a little bit about, like, where, where did you move from? Where did, where did you grow up? What was, your, what was it like growing up? And um, why did you move to Dubai? I, I know you said you're chasing this vision, but what was it that you thought you were going to get? And how was it moving there? So three-part yeah, question. <laughs> Big ones. Mm. So my dad, growing up, my dad was a pilot. So we ended up moving around a lot in you know, different places in the world. Um, every, it felt like every, really every 18 months we were moving back and forth. So I already kind of grew up um, because of his job, uh, just moving a lot. So after, after university, you know, just kind of got antsy, itchy feet. And we had this friend in um, the Middle East in, in, musket oman actually and he's like hey there's there's these opportunities out here why don't you come out um spend a week with us in the summer and hang out and you know we'll see what opens up and so we we moved well we, we visited spent time with those friends and it was just like amazing just all this vision of like possibilities you know like what what could our life look like so we're like well we're young we're free we have a young kid. If we're ever going to do it, if we're ever going to risk anything, we, we might as well go ahead and risk it now when we don't have the house, picket fence, two kids, you know, half a dog sort of deal. <laughs> yeah. So, so that, that's, you know, basically, you know, what it was feeling like this, I feel like we could do something abnormal here with our lives um, rather than just settle for the status quo. And, then we've just kind of been taking one step after another door opening door closing after another um that has now led us to this point did i answer the three points i think i did yeah i'd like to know what is dubai like what is it like living there um dubai is a, a very multicultural city um it's not so much a melting pot it would be more like a salad bowl um where there's kind of different chunks and segments of society uh of mostly divi divided by ethnic groups. It seems like a lot of different ethnic groups kind of stick 
together um, and self-sort, which is very normal for actually most of the world. We're all kind of self-sorting. Um, and a big city, amazing, just the, the architecture that, that goes in, the, the forward thinking. Um, so it's also very hot, but we definitely enjoy, enjoy living here in the region. Um, one, one value that we have is, is learning the local language. Just like, man, if, if I'm living somewhere, I want to at least get some of the language. So we, we learned a little bit of Arabic. Um, not very much, but enough to get by. And yeah, I, I think we've just really learned to love this part of the world and it's become our home. Uh, three out of our four boys were actually born here in the United Arab Emirates. Um, so many good friendships. And so it's just really been uh, an amazing, amazing place to live for the season. How long we lived here in this region. I couldn't tell you. I, I don't know the future, especially now with COVID. Um, but, but we definitely enjoyed it. It's definitely an amazing city to live in. It, it's not all glitz and glam like you might see on the on the TV. Um, it's definitely more diverse than that. And outside, kind of the the, it kind of feels like Vegas in some ways. If you've been to Vegas, you have the you have the malls, you have the Strip, and then outside of the Strip, you have real life and it's normal people working normal jobs and um it's it's a great place to live though yeah cool what do you love about living there what do i love about i think what do i love about living here i think what i love about living here is growing up for me and growing up around so many different cultures I feel like Dubai is a, a place where third-cultured kids and adults gather. So in so many ways, I feel personally, I feel more at home in a city like this because everyone is coming from multicultural backgrounds. And I feel like I fit in more personally because of that. Whereas, you know, if I was, you know, where my family is now in Denver, um, everyone's kind of more from a monolithic uh, background. And so I don't feel like I fit in as much because I look the same, but my inside is feels a little different versus here in, in the Middle East, where I feel like there is so much multiculturalism within each individual that in some ways I, I feel like personally, I, I integrate more with, with people in the culture. Yeah. Awesome. No, that's a good answer. Thanks for sharing. So um love to hear some of your habits you seem to be very on the ball highly energetic uh very articulate in the way that you speak what are some of the things that you do each day to ensure that you have a good day man i wish i i, I can't ensure that i have a good day it's funny for you know the things that i talk about i talk about you know patience i talk about watching your thoughts i talk about laying bricks you know Defaint, de delaying gratification. Um, I talk. I think I talk about it because I'm preaching to myself, right? <laughs> yeah. It's. It's. I'm talking about it because I'm trying to remind myself every day, like Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I wish. I don't think I have a formula of how to like have the perfect day every day. My wife and I have found, you know, as as kind of solopreneurs, freelancers, um, 
you know, bootstrappers, I would call myself a bootstrapper where I'm working with other freelancers and kind of being an an orchestrator, bringing different moving parts together. You have a lot of time that is your own to manage versus, you know, if you're just at a nine to five. Um, And then, and then my wife too, you know, in her home-based business, she finds she has a lot of time, um, you know, even now with COVID, we're homeschooling our kids. So a lot of the time falls on our shoulders, which I think more and more today as people are working remotely, um, having to, you know, kind of help school, self-school, homeschool their kids. There, a lot of people are coming into these kind of conflict zones. For us, we have found, and it sounds, it's, you know, so silly. It's, it's kind of a no-brainer. You know, just having that morning routine, um, you know, waking up together, having a routine that kind of starts your day off um, every morning, that has been a real blessing to us. Having kind of a framework schedule that we know what's happening throughout the day that is really helpful for our kids. Um, so I don't have a, a formula. I, I think I find that I have bad days when I am focused on metrics, right? When I'm focused on, you know, my numbers, those often discourage me because when they're good, I'm not necessarily like having a great day encouraged. I'm like, well, that's what it should be. Yeah. But when it's bad, <laughs> right? Yeah. But when it's bad, it's like I start to like doubt, like, am I doing, I should just quit and give up. Am I quitting, give up and do what? Like, I can't just like not be anymore. I have responsibilities. And so I find that this, you know, the sticker, I have to watch my thoughts. I have to guard my thoughts. Um, so I think that's probably you know, that morning routine, um, making sure that we're having connect points with my kids, um, at certain times in the day, that's really helpful. Um, traditions, weekly traditions, um, so that you kind of have that rhythm throughout, um, not only your day rhythm, your week rhythm, month, year. There's a lot of week. I have a lot of weakness. I don't celebrate things very well. And, you know, social psychology says, you know, every two weeks you should be celebrating milestones. I'm bad at celebration. Um, I need to work on that. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I love time management, but I'm bad at it. I think I love it because I'm bad at it. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of weak, weak spots, um, in, in my life. Yeah, sadly, that's, yeah. that's me being truthful and honest to go back to the, the beginning of our conversation. Yeah, what do you I'm, do? I want to know what, I want to know what you do. I want to learn from you a little bit. Uh, so I, I'm the same as you. So I'll hit a new milestone and then I won't stop to celebrate it. Uh, so I'm really working on that at the moment. I'll be like, yes. And I'll go that next month, you know? So, um, so that, the bad thing about that is because everything under that, even though it might've been just a spectacular month, Everything under that is is likely where you're going to hit next time. So um, I, I've got much better at not doing that. But that came from my swimming background. You know, whenever you, you did a swimming race, you'd get your time and then you just had to beat that time next time. You So you train, train and train and train and train for the next race and you go to race and then hopefully you beat that time. And so I think that's where that mindset came from. Um, but for me, mm-hmm. you know, I think for me it's really important um, – I don't know what your morning rituals are, uh, but I would like to hear about them. But mine is to uh, ensure that my nutrition is right. Like I'm really particular with my nutrition. 
Um, I'm always testing and measuring that and how I feel with certain foods and things that I put into my body. I see as mm. food, water, and the substances I put in my body is like fuel. So if I feel uh, affected negatively from something I put in my body, I'll try not to have it. So that's something in terms of my energy. I'll always be doing that. I'll be in, I try to, if I'm not getting too excited about my businesses and, and helping people and I get really excited about that stuff. So I'll stop exercising. Um, but exercise is critical for me. Like I need, I need the exercise. If I'm not exercising, my mind goes crazy. Um, and I just get into this super laser focus with my work and it's, and it will, and at, at the expense of everything. So not even, I don't even see my family or anyone. Like I'm so focused on work if I haven't been exercising. Um, so I don't know if you can relate to that. <laughs> and, and then, um, and then it's just, it's just, yeah. con and continuously giving back. I love for me and my work that I do now with my staff um, and my clients in my academy, like it's for, for me, I'm so passionate about seeing them win. So when they're winning, mm. that gives me the fulfillment that, um, you know, we've worked together and we've been able to achieve new heights as well. Um, and that, you know, that uh, contribution, I think, is really important. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. I just, you know, just this, maybe last week, I hit this big milestone with my podcast at 100,000 um, listens, which for me, like, wow, you know, that's a huge milestone in my mind. And I was like, yes, I like, I celebrated it. And then the next, like the next day, like my numbers are had like two low days of downloads and I'm just depressed. I'm like, <laughs> my wife just rebukes me. She's like, what are you doing? It's like two days. I'm like, I know, but my life is ending. Like I just had this milestone and now I feel like an idiot. You know, it's just like, it's just funny how, how we get when we focus on those numbers. But like, like you, when I, when I focus on like, okay, is, is one person, am I Im impacting one person in a deep way rather than thousands of people in a shallow way? Um, that is what I try to come back to. And I'm so quick to stray from that. I'm also so quick to, you know, how do I scale this up and, you know, build it? I'm, I'm behind the ball because I'm 34 and I haven't, you know, reached whatever. Um, I'm, I'm so fast to go there in my mind that I, then I'm constantly pulling myself back and grounding myself to like, okay, what's more important? Like, like you talking about your business, it's making a deep impact with some people so that they can win rather than having vanity metrics. But I get, I'm so quick to get wrapped up in those vanity metrics. What are some of the, you know, you know for you, what's some of your eating rituals i mean i've seen your instagram i mean like wow you're uh definitely uh quite fit um i'm a, i i am allergic to fitness i i uh every time i work out it's bad there was a great season where i was um in a you know crossfit community i was working out three four times a week and probably the best i've ever felt i found that when i don't have that kind of community structure i struggle to work out within myself, I just become so laser focused in, um, in my mind, in learning. 
um, you know, someone once told me, all work and no play makes Lucas a dull boy. And I'm like, yeah, that's me. So I, I, what are some of the ways that, that you know, my wife, she, she's a CrossFit trainer. She loves working out. She has to work out every day. It just like sets her mindset in the right place. Um, I struggle. What are some of the ways that you have found that you're able to, whether it's build that into your, your time schedule or, um, you know, into your life, maybe in seasons when you don't have a, a community to work out with? Yeah. So, um, being a swimmer, I think I've, I've trained myself over my whole life to be able to swim and looking at a line. So, so I've got this, uh, and then just do the same stroke over and over and over and over and over and over. So when I was younger, um, growing up through high school, I was doing, you know, nine to 11 training sessions a week. So I would, tr- I would wake wow. up, train, go to school, train, and then go home. And I'd do that every day, Monday to Friday, and I'd train a big session on Saturday or something like that. Um, and so that's sort of like how I was, you know, I developed my athleticism. Um, and that sort of transitioned into partying when I was like 23 to 25. Um, I went, I, I, that was my new sport. So partying, going out, having a good time. And um, it was quite destructive on my life at the time. Um, and, you know, that, that I came full circle and came back to triathlon. And that was another time eating thing. So that's when my business was quite young still. And I decided, you know, I'm going to do triathlon and I'm going to do it like I used to do it. So I started training like I used to train um, and it took up all the work time. <laughs> so um, it didn't work. I did it for, I did it for a year and trained with um, you know, the West Australian high performance squad um, because of my swimming ability and got wow. really good really quick. Um, but then my wife pretty much banned me from triathlon coming into having our first daughter. Cause I was just training the whole time she was pregnant, you know, and, um, it, it took over my whole life again. So, um, so for me, it's been finding that balance and how do we achieve that ability to train and keep a balanced life. And I've been mm. working on that for quite a while. So for me now it's about, you know, finding a training regime, which is fast enough and you can get, like you can seriously get some really euphoric feelings from something like um, some exercises I do is I've got a, a football or a, a, you know, a soccer uh, football field, the rectangle one down the road. So it's like literally 400 meters from my house. And what you can do is just do sprints at four, four laps or even three laps. And you sprint one length of the, that's like a hundred meters. You do it as fast as you can, max effort. And then you, on a minute cycle, you just do each length on a minute, you know, and it's within less than 10 or well, 12 minutes, you're done if, for three laps. And um, that's a fast, you know, highly impactful uh, training session for anyone to do. And the best thing about it is max effort is your max effort. There's no like you have to be this fast or you have to keep up with the gang or the crowd or anything. Um, so I think short, fast training like that is super effective. And I think a lot of people overtrain. You know, if you uh, are not built to train for long periods of time, you're going to injure yourself. And a lot of people go in training for like mm. F45 or CrossFit or something like that. And they'll go in and train, you know, go every day, but they're not giving their bodies enough time to rest. Yeah. And so um, 
I don't think people need to train as much as they do, but I think when they do train, they have to train right. Um, and something like that sprinting sets really important and some resistive training. So like squats, deadlifts, um, and it doesn't have to be many of those, but just done, you know, once a week is enough to build a solid foundation within your body. So in terms of exercise. Did, so did you uh, ever complete an Ironman then? Um, I did 70.3s, which is half Ironman. So for me, it was speed. I didn't do a full Ironman, um, but the, uh, I was training for a 100-kilometer trail run in the Blue Mountains just recently, a year ago. Um, and that was going to take about 12 hours to finish because it was like 3,500 meters of elevation as well. Um, so that was going to be a big race that I was training up for. Wow. Um, I ended up doing a 50-kilometer run in preparation for that. Um, but then COVID hit and I think I was already checked out of doing it anyway because it's just the same thing happened. Like I started training so much for that sort of an event <laughs> and I just don't think it's worth it. Like not in this period of my life when my kids are so young and, you know, I've got the businesses that I do and the people that I have to serve. So I, I think you've just got to assess what's really important and look at the whole picture um, and... If it's just health that you want, you can do it with quite a, a little amount of um, input every week. Mm. What are some of the, what are some of the, you know, from training for, you know, even a half triathlon um, with such a high performance team, what are some of the, the principles or the mindsets that you acquired through working with such high performers um, that that you've been able to translate into your businesses or into even some of your, your daily disciplines now, even when you're not work with these high performers, what were some of these, the things that some of the highest performers of those high performers did that, you know, me or those listening can pull out and kind of translate back into, um, you know, for the average Joe who's working a job or, or building their business and apply those things in, um, in different ways? It's definitely a, a great question. And I think for me, what I've witnessed working with and training with some of the world's best athletes is that the people who do it so well and the, the, you know, the super freaks, they find, and I've been there as well, when you're in a good flow, you find a meditative state in work. So it's about finding, even mm. when it's hurting you, it's painful, it's boring, it's, you know, it's something you don't want to be doing right now. And sometimes the dialogue that goes in your head is, you know, why the F am I doing this? I don't want to be doing this. Like I'm hurting, you know, I don't, why am I doing this? Like that's the question. So you've got to remind yourself of the, the greater reason, you know, in the training sessions where you're really hurting, you've got to be able to connect it instantly. As soon as you have that, self-talk which is going to affect your training and in work it's the self-talk that's going to affect you performing on that day to move you forward in work then you need to be able to switch it off quickly and to be able to switch it off quickly you need to know what that future is that you're trying to achieve and if that if that future is the life you're living now as well it needs to be full circle come back and this is why you're doing you know, so you can live this life today. Um, so it just depends on, on, you know, I think understanding where, 
the purpose of what you're doing and so intrinsically that it's not even a question you know it's a quick no that's why and so keep going you know i th- i mean that goes back to everything that we've been talking about what you know even this this sticker of like you know watch your thoughts it's once that talk that voice you know comes in we have to grab it and we have to grab it with what's the truth of well why are we doing this and i you know sometimes i think you know you look at those athletes and i think like wow you just you must enjoy you must enjoy working out like i don't enjoy it you must enjoy it you know maybe it's just not for me you know and after once i'm working out for a while and and i am i condition my body again normally cuz whenever i'm doing like a an amrap or um some something that's short high intensity i will literally i'll have to lay down on the ground and not be able to move i can't feel my face i literally not feel my face for 45 minutes my wife will try to talk to me i cannot respond for 45 minutes until all of a sudden i'm like oh i feel great now but i i think that like oh well these people much really just love every moment of it and that's why they do it i i find it fascinating to hear that those high performers actually hate the process of it there's there's moments where you're like why am i doing this this is painful this hurts and it's right in that you have to kick in with that that mindset with that vision to remind yourself of okay why am i doing this what's the goal what am i pushing for that makes all of this pain worth it and that's what i think i started to talk about in my book right it was all of a sudden i have all this pain in my life and we had some people who were like well maybe you just made a bad choice you should just move i'm like well yeah let's just give up that sounds like a great idea and then other people were like you're doing great you're awesome i'm like i don't feel awesome and then it was like how do i embrace the mundane the pain the suffering how do i embrace that and overcome that so that i can be become a different person and that's what you know i hear you talking about in not only in the work, but in, in the fitness of like, I have to embrace, I have to embrace this mundane, boring suffering. It sucks. It's horrible, but it's the embracing it that actually causes us to be great. And I think people have it so backwards. It's the romanticism of being great. You know, we hear like, you know, like the Lord of the Rings soundtrack or a a Star Wars soundtrack. and, And we think like that should be our life but it's like the opposite. It's like the grind, the pain that we have to embrace. I, I for sure, I for sure face that. Um, and some days I think I'm better at the, than others at reminding myself and turning that self-talk off. So what are, so is it, how do you turn that talk off? Is it just shutting that voice up and reminding yourself or are there, do you, in those moments in your work, do you, you know, take a moment, whether it's with your broader team or you yourself, do you have like a meeting where you're recasting that vision? You're kind of like dismantling those lies and like bringing things forward to the first place, uh, to the forefront. How do you do that with your team? How do you do that with you, yourself personally? Um, I have to start with myself. Like if I don't start with myself, it's not going to happen. Um, and I won't understand mm. the problem. So I start with myself now by journaling. Whenever I feel, and I'm very responsive to my wife, um, when she now says, you know, how much coffee have you been drinking? <laughs> or something like that. So she'll be like, you are 
you are in hyper mode at the moment. I can tell you are in super focus and you're not quite with it because you're always thinking about your work and you're, you're in hyper mode. So in that, when she says that to me now, I'll go into a, a ritual, ritualistic state where I'll put on, specifically for me, I put on chill step music. Um, I will have a bath. That's awesome. Yeah, I'll have a, this is my ritual. So I'll have a bath and then I'll put on, I'll cool down and then I'll put on chill step music and I'll just sit until I stop sweating because I'll have a hot bath. And then, and once I stop sweating enough so I can journal with a pen and paper, then I'll start writing about, um, you know, what is happening? Where are you at? What's going on? And I speak third person to myself. So objectively looking at myself mm-hmm. and I'll write about, you know, the situation because I feel more comfortable. It's easier for me to almost coach myself and um, be in a coaching mindset to myself. So I'll, I'll ask lots of questions. I'll journal it all out and I'll usually come to a resolution pretty quickly and understand that some of the core things that I need to reset is, you know, why am I doing this? Um, are you, are you achieving that now? Can you live that life today? And the usually the answer is always yes. Um, and so, you know, and then I'll go back to some of my nutrition stuff. So I'll usually find by that stage, if I'm like that, my nutrition slipped, um, and I'm not training properly. So it's almost like, I'll slowly slip into this hyper-focus mode and everything else will fall away. Like I was saying, like I lose attention of my family, nutrition, exercise, all the things I know are good for me um, in this pursuit of uh, the mm. achieving, you know, something else that I've created is the goal that I need to create. Like it might be, you know, um, hitting a new target at work or whatever it is or creating, some of them are like, I'll just come up with this idea to recreate a whole website and then I'll just get to work on it. And it's just such a stupidly big task. Um, whereas if I am um, in, in a, in a good mindset, and I think this was really important, you know, for athletes as well is understanding where your body's at and not overtraining. You must've heard about people in CrossFit overtraining all the time and just destroying your body and adrenal system. And then it causes you to not be able to recover fast enough. And you slowly get to a point where you're throwing your hormone imbalances out and everything in your whole body is being affected, um, causing, you know, potentially chronic, you know, diseases in your body. And, um, and I think that's you know, a form of over, over stress. It's just constant stress um, that we have to make sure we regulate. And so for me now it's in a, it doesn't happen very frequently anymore. It's maybe every six months to a year that I might slip into that sort of state. And then I'll be journaling definitely um, to recalibrate. And then I'll take what I've understood to my team and say, sorry, usually, um, that I haven't been more aware. Um, because usually I will put a lot of pressure on the other people to achieve more as well at that time. Um, and then, come back and we'll recalibrate and refocus on the future vision of uh, with usually less height of, of the goal. Cause you know, I'm always going for these extremely high uh, results. And so all it needs is just a nice cut in half. And then all of a sudden all that pressure is relieved and, um, mm. the, and the goal achieved is still tremendous. You know, like I'm just putting just too much too, too big of a goal too soon 
maybe the time frame's pulled in a little bit too tight. Um, and I think that happens if, you know, lots of people with their goals, like wanting to achieve something too quickly will cause you to either burn out, destroy relationships. Um, you know, I don't think it's sustainable. So don't know if you've related to sure. that. Fall into anxiety, right? I find like when I, when I start to want to achieve something so big like that, and I set these crazy goals, all of a sudden, I immediately find that I'm in anxiety to try to figure out how to reach these, you know, unattainable, you know, pipe dreams. And then, you know, again, hyper-focused, discouraged because I'm so far behind. It's just not, it doesn't serve me. It doesn't, it doesn't actually cause my work to be even productive. It actually causes, you know, a diminishing return. Um, I like that example that you gave you know, with overtraining in fitness that also kind of, it causes that uh, adrenal fatigue. And it's interesting, like when we, when we push so much harder, we actually normally don't see those returns. And really when, it, when we step it back for kind of a more of a longer play, we gain more joy, more life, and the, we actually achieve our goals better. Uh, and I was going to ask you how often you end up falling, you know, back into that, how often you have to reset. But it sounds like in the beginning, you probably were doing that once every two, three weeks, and then you developed kind of better habits that it's not so often. Yeah, definitely. So it's, uh, it was the, the times before I would get into that hyper mode and not know what to do. So I just, just would, um, you know, drink alcohol or I can't even remember what I did, but I'll just, I'll go party or I don't know. But that was like, there was destructive things that I'd do because I didn't have any structure around what to do in those situations. Um, now, um, being able to recognize firstly that I'm in that state and then, like you said, capture it before it's a problem. Like when we're talking about kids, mm -hmm. like being able to capture myself before it's a problem for myself. I'm able to do that now. I don't get to a, a destructive level um, where, you know, that got to a point where it could become destructive. And I think a lot of people put a lot of pressure on themselves and it becomes destructive. Um, and that's when you don't, you stop growing for a long period of time because you'll, you'll go to a, you know, destructive habit like drinking alcohol or drugs or TV or, you know, gaming or whatever it is, um, gaming, in, when it's not, you know, putting towards your uh, future vision, like might, that might be a career. So that's good if that's what you do. Um, but I think that if that's, you know, if we've got to recognize if the, if we are moving towards a place where it's not comfortable for us, we've, we've pushed the goal too far. I think it's also important to have big goals because it changes our behavior and our attitude towards um, the actions we take and that's what results in us growing fast. But then there's that point of going too far. Yeah. 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 I like, I like that because so often when I, at least for me and speak for myself, when I'm pushing so hard, it's normally because, you know, it's wrapped up in a secondary metric that I feel like I want to achieve. So, you know, whether it's recognition, whether it's, you know, the pride of life, whether it's, you, you know, feeling like one of my, my identity boxes is kind of checked like, oh, look, I'm successful in this. I hit this, you know, this income mark. 
you know, it's almost, it feels like it's, it's not necessarily often about actually achieving the goal, but what we think that goal would mean for us as an individual. And it, for me, it always triggers saying that my, my identity is placed in the wrong thing. My identity is placed in my outcome, in my achievement. And whatever it is, I, I will always become disappointed. You know, even when I, when I hit my milestones, I hit my milestone and it doesn't feel as romantic as I think that it should feel. And so I'm actually find myself more disappointed when, after I hit it than when I didn't hit it because I realized it's fool's gold, right? It's like, it's not, it's not real. It's, it doesn't actually satisfy us deep within, you know, it's, it's not bringing that fulfillment that we are pursuing. But I also like, you know, setting goals that are much bigger so that it pushes our, our efforts to something that we think that, you know, we, something that we wouldn't do, or we didn't think that we were able to. So I love pushing those goals because then it actually causes me to be creative in saying, okay, well, other people have gotten there. How can I get there too? What creative thinkings do I have to employ based on my limitations? And I think that's part of part of it too. It's realizing what are my limitations that and bounds that I have to work within in order for each to reach my crazy goals, right? So if you bring your crazy goals into reality and into okay, how do I do it within keeping my health regime in? working out every day in having a healthy family life? How do I do this without burning out my team and making them all hate me? When we bring them into like the limitations, those bounds of limitations are actually the things that, that breeds creativity, right? And so I, I love, you know, when I'm working with clients, I, I bring it down, okay, what are the limitations that we are working within? Because those limitations enabled us to actually build something great rather than just having, you know, pie in the sky. And, and I talk about this when, you know, boundaries within our personal life. If we don't have boundaries, and this is, you know, what we've been talking about, bringing truth, bringing reality in, boundaries are like the walls of a riverbank. If, if a river doesn't have banks, it just becomes a swamp. And nothing can live in a swamp because there's no flow of water. There's no flow of life. And it's when there's those tight riverbanks that the river is able to go quickly, it's able to go deep, it's able to cut through mountain sides with those riverbanks. But when it's, you know, wide riverbanks and it's just meandering wherever it wants to go, it will just turn into a swamp which becomes brackish and toxic and death. And that's why, you know, those limitations of saying, what are we saying no to? What are the, the limitations? I mean, just think of your marriage. When you got married, you said no to 3.5 billion women, right? You said no to all of this. And that limitation of committing to one person actually brought forth joy, life, happiness, kids. Like that, the saying no is almost as important as the saying yes. Um, and I just, I love how you hit on that. That just resonates so much with me. Yeah, the saying no thing is so so critical and we have to be able to assess that like for me i saw that alcohol was a problem and i quit alcohol like ever since i was 27 you know i stopped drinking alcohol till i was 30. um that was just the goal <laughs> like i won't drink until i'm 30 because it's not working for me right now i just had our, our daughter like I, I said you know i don't want to be this person yeah. for her 
um, and it's not working for me, so I quit it and I didn't have a single drop. People would offer me, like, just taste this. And I was like, no, I don't want it. I'm not having any. So it's zero. And the, yeah. to say no to it was the greatest thing I've ever been able to do. Like, and, you know, that when we start saying no to the things that we know aren't good, and the same with my nutrition mm. when I was talking about it before, when I put something in my mouth and I swallow it, and then 15 minutes, if I'm not feeling like good from that, if I'm feeling like, oh, I feel a bit tired or I feel a bit headachey from that, then I'm not going to eat that again because I'm going to say no to that because it's not adding to the value of my life, you know? So mm -hmm. the ability to say no is what, you know, I think successful people. And when you come back to the athletes that you asked me about before, they say no to so much. They say no to everything that's not going to move them forward towards their goal. Man. You know, that, that makes me think of something we talked about earlier, which is, we have to be conscious of the world around us. If we're living in ignorant bliss, sure, we might be happy, but that's because like we've decided to fall asleep. We've fallen asleep to ourselves and the world around us. Um, you know, for me, when I was probably about 19, 20, 21, I developed uh, and became lactose intolerant, but I didn't know it. I just thought it was normal that every time you ate food, that my stomach was going to be in intense pain. It felt like I was getting stabbed in my stomach wow. every day. But I, I thought it was normal. I'm like, oh, this just happens when you eat. Like, you know, it's just normal. It just happens. And then one day, I didn't have cheese on my sandwich, and they were out of cream at the coffee shop, so I had my coffee without cream, and my stomach didn't hurt at all today. But because I was had awareness. I could have just kept on going on and drinking milk and cream and, and dairy products and suffered for it. But because I moved into a place of awareness and I was awake to the fact that, wait, my stomach feels okay. So I cut all milk out for a week. I felt great. I tried it. You know, after a week, I felt horrible. And I said, that's it. I cut out all, I love cheese. I love dairy products. I had to cut out all, all, all dairy products for a number of years. And now I can drink cheese again, but still any sort of like milk or cream will destroy me. But when someone offers me it, it's like, mm, I don't even have a desire for it. I'm so repulsed from it because I know the negative effects that it has on my body. But it takes us first being conscious and aware, which first takes us being to the place where we're willing to address the problems in our life. Like, I thought that it was normal that my stomach hurt, so I kept on suffering for it. But then the moment I realized, wait, this is a problem and it's not normal, I was able to deal with it. And that takes us waking up from slumber and becoming aware, asking questions, seeking truth. And, and, and the thing that I focus on in my show, the, if I think, if, okay, if you were to ask me, what is the goal of your show? It's... My goal is to get people to ask questions and to reflect on their life, to seek out truth, not to necessarily give answers, but how can we build frameworks that allow us to begin to look at the world differently, seek out questions, seek out truth, seek out wisdom, because it's in that that we become conscious and aware to our pain, to our problem, to the, the problems of the world around us to, that enables us to then start ask those questions. But... It's like you, if, 
if you weren't aware that if you weren't in tune with your body and aware that when you ate something you didn't feel good if you didn't connect those two together you would just keep on suffering for it yeah i think that's something that people can start doing today is find a find a place with what you eat like strip it back to basics you know and find like for me um I felt really good on like a paleolithic diet, um, also ketosis. I feel really good in ketosis. Um, there's certain diets that I've tried, which I feel really good. That's like a baseline. So once you've found baseline and you go, I feel great on this, then start to add in things one at a time and see if it reacts with you. Cause some people can drink milk. Some people can drink, you know, eat bread, you know, and, and they don't really get an adverse effect to it. But some people just don't, they don't ever give themselves the opportunity to feel what they f would feel like if they didn't, yeah. like you were saying. Um, and I think we need to continually test ourselves um, to see, mm. you know, what is our baseline? Because even when you think you might feel good, there could be an op opportunity to feel better um, if you took one of those things you are eating out and we have to continually rotate and it's not hard to do. It's just find that baseline and then, identify when something doesn't work and stop eating it, you know, or stop whatever it is you put in your body, drink or, or food. Same with exercise. And I think, yeah. Yeah. And ex expanding that, that metaphor, that picture into what we consume with our eyes and our ears, right? The TV shows that we watch, yeah. right? The news that we consume, you know, the other day yeah, yeah. I, I woke up, I woke up and, and checked all of my metrics first thing in the morning, which I know, like, I know that I shouldn't do, but I did it, set my day off to like a bad start. And, and so I think taking that too, like, okay, what news, how much are you scrolling through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter? Like we have to be conscious of that diet too, because that stuff really affects our mind. The anxiety that the 24 hour news cycle just slams our mind. My dad, he, uh, if he was here, he would tell you this story. So I feel like I can share it. He would, he would watch probably like two hours of news a day, just so up to date on all of us politics. I mean, like so up to date. And he came to a point of realizing this, this isn't helping my life. It's just making me more upset and angry at our political process. And either I need to go into politics and actually become active and do something with this, or I should turn all this off because it's just wasting my emotional life energy on all this noise that's just making me angry and anxious and upset at how crazy people are. And so I think in the same way, it's like, okay, we need to audit our food diet. We need to audit our exercise diet we or, or you know our level of exercise how much are we sitting we need to audit what we're scrolling on in our phone we need to audit the, the types of shows that we're watching with our spouses you know what is that diet coming in yeah and i bet cutting a lot of it out you know will definitely definitely help um the other thing that we haven't said just expanding even further is relationships like the amount of people that go to work or hang around people that make them feel bad. Uh, oh, we man. have to reassess that and just look for opportunities to build better connections, you know, um, cause that, that social connection we're we're losing the opportunity to be connected because of the social platforms. 
and we're feeling like we're connected, but we're not, you know, we're not actually having yes. human loving connected conversation anymore. And like person to person. <laughs> and yes. Yeah. And, um, we need to, we need to find that in someone, you know, people that we hang out with. Well, and it goes back to what you talked about with you and your wife. In, in the beginning of this episode, you shared on how you, because your wife was closest to you, you didn't want to show your weakness and your vulnerability. And in, in some ways, I'm going to ex, uh, extrapolate on that metaphor. Like you said, we're connecting with people in digital ways online, spending so much energy, whether it's on Twitter or, or Instagram, email. We're spending all of this energy on all of these relationships uh, jockeying for status among people that we actually don't have those important, meaningful relationships from. And I know for me, I can find when I get really wrapped up in that, I start neglecting the relationships that do matter. Yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm neglecting my wife. I'm neglecting my kids. And I'm like, well, I just got to, I got to, I'm, I'm in this, you know, conversation with this person that I haven't met. I need to like, you know, make sure that they know that, you know, I'm right and they're wrong. <laughs> yeah. And my family's right there. And it's like, wait, this is really important. Like, is it? Yeah. Is it really? And, and the level, okay, a level there is a, a healthy way that we need to engage in the world, that we have these platforms that we're actually able to talk and build um, massive amount of influence and network and help people's lives in real ways that, that like you and I are doing through our podcast, through our shows, we're, like I get emails from people that I don't know and they're being, you know, impacted. And I think, so there's a responsibility that we have to carry there. It's like you talked about balance earlier, like what, how are you uh, managing your time? But then, as you said, we need to invest into those real flesh and blood relationships around us that we care about that we say, you know what, Every, everyone's going to forget about me when I die you know, you'll forget about me in three months. You know, you listening to this, you're going to forget about me the moment that you turn off this episode. And when I die, I'm my, my kids and my grandkids are going to forget about me in a short matter of time. My great, great grandchildren, I might be lucky if they know my name, even if I'm the most famous person, I'm going to be forgotten about. I mean, so fast. But we need to invest in in those relationships that are right around us that are actually most valuable to us rather than chasing a metric. And I, I don't say that to, to preach to someone else. I say that to preach to myself. You know, I, I say that to myself because I know I am so prone to that temptation. Yeah, 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 me too. Yeah, so, <laughs> man, I um. Oh, I've enjoyed this conversation so much. I'll be really keen if we catch up and continue another time. If you're Let's open do it. To that. Yeah. Um, so keen. I, I do have to get back to my family. So, <laughs> um, Likewise. Yeah, cool. Hey, man, uh, thank you so much for your time. This has been epic. So uh, looking forward to chatting again. And yes. I really appreciate your time, really appreciate your wisdom, and I really appreciate your experience. It's been so much fun. I've, I've loved the conversation. I've loved hearing, you know, from you, your high performance, your, your methodologies, uh, uh, rituals that you've put in place. I've been inspired um, and I've really enjoyed our conversations. So thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you. See you next time. See you then.